Well, good Friday. Did you have a chance to ask the people around you what they, how you greet someone on Good Friday? I wonder what it is, it is for you. But whatever it is, Easter is perhaps one of the most special moments in the year for Christians. In the calendar year, it's, it's the moment that shapes and de- defines the Christian life. It's the key, the key moment. But I wonder whether you're here and new and exploring or whether you've been a Christian for a very long time, have you stopped to wonder about how that's just a little bit weird? Because uh, Easter is all about death. See, what's up with Christians? Do we have some kind of morbid obsession with death where we kind of talk about death all the time? What's going on? Every kind of religion or political movement has a different symbols that they use to kind of define their movement. So you think uh, Islam has uh, um, the crescent star, which symbolizes the lunar calendar. Or, or Buddhism has the lotus flower, which symbolizes the kind of circle of life and death and rebirth. Or, or you know, communism has the, the, uh, the hammer and the sickle, and it's this kind of the farmers and the industry workers uniting together against um, the, against the people against the people with the power. But Christianity has come to be known by the symbol of the cross, a symbol of death, and, and perhaps the most shameful and terrifying symbol of death that existed in the ancient world. Have you thought, thought about that for a second? Like we kind of we put crosses on our necks or you know get tattoos of them or put them in our houses and frame them or ha- have little symbols of them around the place. It, it's a symbol of death. Wouldn't it be weird if you kind of put an electric chair or a gun or something around your neck and wore it around the place? See, of all the things we could have emphasized about Jesus, his life, his compassion, his teaching, his resurrection, his kindness and his love, what do we choose to emphasize? His death. Why has the cross become so central to what Christians actually believe? That's the question we're going to be exploring today. And we're going to do it in two ways. We're going to see why Jesus needed to die and then what his death actually accomplished. And my hope is that you'll leave here this morning seeing that Jesus' death is the most significant moment in all of world history. And not just in world history, but actually in your life as well. So why don't we start and we'll pray that God would help us to see the significance of Jesus' death together. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We pray this morning as we open up your word and hear you speak to us, that you would show us with fresh eyes the significance of Jesus' death. We pray that you would show us what it means for all of world history, but also for us, that you would do a work in our hearts showing us how much Jesus' death is what we need. Amen. Well, the first point, if you're following on in your outlines, is the need for Jesus to die. And it's interesting, lots of people have different views about why they think Jesus had to die. See, some people think that Jesus was a great teacher, and if that's who you think Jesus is, then you will care mostly about what he said, and you'll kind of look at his teachings and try and get wisdom from them. Other people think that Jesus was a great, uh, a kind and compassionate person, and so they particularly care about his love, his miracles, his healings, the way he spoke with such compassion and tenderness to the down and outs of society. 
Uh, others among us perhaps might think that Jesus was just a man, and this whole thing has just been kind of blown out of proportion. And if you're in that boat, you're probably thinking, well, why is this significant for me today, if he was just a man that lived 2,000 years ago? Now, I've been reading through Luke's gospel in the lead-up to Easter, and the thing that's interesting is to look at why Jesus said he came. And the thing that always seems to be on Jesus' mind from the start of his ministry right through to the end of his ministry is his death. It's his death. It's a reality that Jesus was intimately familiar with. Have you thought about that? That Jesus lived his life thinking about his death, knowing it was coming, knowing what it would be like, and, and moving through his life towards that point. He did come to teach and to love and to heal and all these other things, but ultimately Jesus came to die. See, in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, it's going to come on the screen, Jesus says this. He says, For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. See, Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 53, a 700-year-old prophecy that was recorded for the people of God about this one who was going to come and who was going to save the people, who was going to sacrifice himself for God's people to bring them back to God. And, and, And Jesus, he says it twice so that we can't miss it. He says, what is written is fulfilled in me. He says, I'm the one that's going to come and fulfill this 700-year-old prophecy. But more than that, he says, this prophecy, it was actually written about me. See, the only reason that prophecy even exists because it was written for me that I would come and do this. There's no one else that could ever have possibly done what this prophecy is saying other than Jesus. And what does it say? That he would be counted among the lawless. That the one who would save the people would be someone perfect, someone spotless, someone sinless, someone innocent, and yet they would be counted among the lawless. And knowing that reality, Jesus knew it and said it was about him. He was going to fulfill it. And so he resolutely heads towards his own death. It's amazing. Jesus came to earth and the thing that was primarily of his concern was his own death. In his book, The Death of Ivan Illich, uh, Tolstoy deals masterfully with this idea of death. I I was sick for a few weeks uh, a little while ago and so I was trying to read a few different things and I read this book and in the book, right, the book's all about this main character whose name is Ivan and he comes to realize that he's going to die. He's got this sickness that's meaning that he knows he's going to die And he starts to wrestle with his own mortality. What's life all about? What's death all about? How can I know if I've lived a good life? And he's lying in bed and he's sick and he knows he's going to die. And in the other room are his friends who don't yet know how serious his illness is. And he says this. It'll come on the screen. He says, death. Yes, death. And they, all of them, don't understand and don't want to understand and feel no pity. They are playing He caught them through the closed doors, the faraway cadence of a voice and the accompaniment. They don't care, but they will die too. Fools, me sooner and them later, but it will be the same for them. And they are merry, the beasts. Anger stifled him, and he was agonizingly, insufferably miserable. It cannot be that all men always have been doomed to this awful horror. Do you you see what 
Tolstoy kind of brings this to life in, in the character of Ivan. It cannot be that all people always have been doomed to this awful horror. Now, I don't know your story, but I know for some of us in the room, we have experienced significant loss and death of loved ones. Um, but for all of us, we may never have thought about death before. And, and that's the case for Ivan. He, he wakes up and he realizes that he's been doomed to die from the start of his life. And although he knew he was mortal, when he's um, presented face to face with his own mortality, he's struck by the horror of it. It's too much. He can't think about it. It makes him agonizingly miserable. See, there's two different men and two different approaches to death. Ivan, who can't deal with the reality of his incoming death, and Jesus, who knows his death is coming and yet resolutely sets forward willingly and joyfully into that. It's amazing. So why is it that Jesus' death was so necessary that he was willing to step forward and take death and look at it head on and face it for us? Well, to do this, we're going to look at two different passages in the Bible that were read out. Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter. If you've got a physical Bible, I recommend you keep a finger in between each of them so you don't kind of lose your place. We'll be flipping between them. And we're going to look at these two bits of Scripture. One 2,000 years ago, written after Jesus' death, reflecting on it. And one about 2,700 years ago, the Isaiah passage, looking forward to Jesus' death. And we're going to see what they show us about Jesus' need to die. So open up 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. <clears throat> says this. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, Peter reflects on the life of Jesus, and what does he choose to emphasize? There's a number of things there, but the first one is that Jesus never sinned. He never lied. He never insulted. He always trusted God the one who is just. And yet Jesus died a rebel's death under punishment. Isaiah looks back at this prophecy about this servant who was going to sacrifice his life for the good of others and save them and says that's about Jesus. See, look back into Isaiah 53. Flip, flip back there and look at verse 9. It'll come up on the screen. In verse 9, reflecting on this truth, it says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Do you see how Peter's using the language of this prophecy about Jesus from 2,700 years ago and, and reflecting on it as he speaks about the life and death of Jesus? He'd done no violence. He hadn't spoken deceitfully. See, the point that Peter is trying to make is that this prophecy is about Jesus. And, and that Jesus never sinned in his life. He lived the perfect, sinless life. He never broke God's law. Or to use the language of Isaiah, Jesus wasn't a rebel. But here's the truth that sits at the heart of Easter, and it's why we're kind of gathered here this morning, is that Jesus needed to die because you and I, we are rebels. 
We are in wrong relationship with God. We're at war with God and each of us have sinned before God. See, in Isaiah 53, 5, here's what the suffering servant, the promised one who will save, here's what he's going to do. It says, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Do you see it there? Each of us are rebels in rebellion against God, and it would need someone that is this promised one from Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus, to actually deal with our rebellion. But I wonder if you're like me and you ever attempted to think, I'm not actually in rebellion against God. I want to show you this is uh, Prince Leonard. Uh, <laughs> He's actually passed away now, but he was a, before he was a prince, he was just an ordinary farmer living in Western Australia. And he got fed up with having to pay taxes and having to follow all the laws of the Australian government and all the rules that you have to follow. And so in 1970, do you know what Prince Leonard decided to do? He decided to start his own country. And he called it the, the Principality of the Hutt River. And Leonard, he became a prince when he started his own country, because you can do that kind of thing when you create a country, right? <laughs> and he formed his own banknotes and his own government, of which he was the head, the monarch and the head of government. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's not, not okay anymore. But he declared that anyone that needed to come into his country needed a visa. And so he would have like a border security team that would stamp visas to come in. And See, what Leonard did is he took all the good stuff from Australia, the education, the roads, the, the, all the systems that were set up, but he said, I want nothing to do with any of the, the payment or any of the relationship with the country. He said, I want nothing to do with the laws. See, Prince Leonard did to Australia what each of us have done to God. We take all his good gifts and the good things that he gives us, and we say to them, thanks God, we'll take it from here, you can get lost. We say, we say we don't, we're not interested in listening to you and living your way. We're going to take the good stuff and then just leave you to the side. We live as rebels, denying that God is the one who made us the ruler and creator of all. And we make our own little kingdoms. The principality of Ben, the principality of Ryan, of Emma, of all of us. We do this in our own lives. We make ourselves the little king and queen of our, of our kingdom. And in doing so, we forget that God is life. And in him is life, and to reject him means that, that we don't have life anymore, we have death. See, I wonder what you would say to the question, what does God think of you? How would you answer that? I reckon for lots of Aucklanders today, they reckon God thinks that they're all right. You know, not perfect, no one's going to say they're perfect, of course I'm not perfect, but we all know we're not perfect. That I reckon lots of people would say something like, I haven't done anything really bad and I try my best to treat others with respect and dignity and treat them well and to be a good human. And I reckon if God was to rate me, he'd give me you know, a six or a seven. You know, Not perfect, but not totally bad. Not like other people that are out there. But to do that is to misunderstand what sin actually is. See, sin's not about the good or the bad that you do, but primarily about your relationship with God. The reality is that the Bible says that each of us is a rebel. 
Each of us in big or small ways, no matter the good or the bad that we do in our lives, have chosen to rebel against God, to not to listen to him, to want to be the one to call the shots in our own life. And so each of us as rebels are at war with God. We're at war with him now. And the consequence for this is huge. See, Peter says that the consequence for our rebellion and the cost of it in, in, in verse 24 is that Jesus had to bear our sins on that tree, on the cross. See, Jesus was the only one that could take that consequence for us to deal with our rebellion and our refusal to listen to God and, and to deal with the conflict that we have with God. If you're here today and you're wondering what Christianity is all about, can I say to you, only Jesus can deal with the problem of you being a rebel. Only in his death can you find life and come and find peace with God again. See, trying hard to do good before God won't work. It won't get there. It'll it'll be crushingly impossible to do. Ignoring the problem And just hoping it'll go away and hoping for the best. It won't get you there because this problem is too huge to just be smoothed over. And and can I say, not even feeling sorry or wanting to change will get you there. Lots of what I see online at the moment is this kind of this idea of self-betterment. I just need to look for my areas of weakness and, and, and try and have a growth mindset and kind of keep improving myself. And I just want to keep doing that. But that will never get you there. It's only Jesus. Every other way of trying to be right with God is fake news and false promises. It won't deal with the problem of you as a rebel. It'll, be, it'll crush you if you try and deal with that problem yourself. For those of us, though, who are here and do trust Jesus, I wonder if, like me, your danger is that over time, you start to forget this truth. We're tempted, aren't we, to kind of think about the ways that we love God and love others and serve God, and we think, oh, yeah, it's Jesus' death, but I'm sure kind of helping a little bit here. And we start to drift into thinking that we've moved on from the core truth of the gospel. And, And what was once the most precious truth in our lives starts to get taken for granted. Of course Jesus died for me. I know it. And over time, it just starts to get taken for granted. Do you, do you do that? Do you do that as well? See, Easter rolls around and, I, and we're tempted to think, oh, I'm so excited for my mate or my family member or someone else to hear about the good news of Jesus, but I already know it. I already know it. It's, it's something that I've known for a long time. And, it, and to be honest, I'm even tempted to think it's a little bit boring at times. I don't know if that's you or it's just me. But the chance to stop at Easter and reflect on Jesus' death is at the heart and center of every one of our lives, whether we know it yet or not. See, when I was younger, I used to think that as I grew in maturity as a Christian, I'd need Jesus less. I don't know if you've thought that. Kind of like how kids with their parents, right? As, you, as your kids grow up, they start to need you less and yet less and they get more independent and then from that, they eventually kind of move out of home. And, you know, maybe some of you need a bit of a nudge to get get out of home this morning. Some of the parents here are like, yes, my kids are nearly there. Um, but Christian faith, Christian maturity is not like that. It's actually the opposite. Christian maturity is seeing your need for Jesus 
more and more every day, not less. See, the longer I've trusted Jesus, the more I see my need for him. The more I'm convinced that the gospel is my only hope, the more I see who Jesus is and what he's done, the more I love him. The more I turn to him and depend on him. If a sign of Christian maturity is the person who can say, I couldn't imagine going a week without speaking to Jesus, without praying to God, without hearing from him in his word. Is that you here this morning, this Easter? Easter is a chance to come back and be reminded that the heart of the Christian faith is to depend on Jesus more, not less. To center our lives on him, to spend every day enjoying life with the God who made us. That is the heartbeat of what we believe as Christians. Christian maturity looks like seeing your need for Jesus more, not less. See, without Jesus' death, God looks at me and sees a rebel. He sees uh, this person who's at war with him, a broken relationship and under punishment, deserving of punishment for how I've treated him. And the only way for that punishment to be dealt with is Jesus. That's the first point. Jesus needed to die. But secondly, what does his death actually accomplish? Second point in your outlines. The first thing we see as we look at these two passages is that Jesus' death paid the penalty so that we don't have to. Look at, look into, flip back to Isaiah 53 and look at verse 5 with me. It says, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. See, the only way to come back into right relationship with God is for the penalty for sin to be paid. See, God can't just kind of shrug his shoulders and, and forgive and forget. And God's not like that. He's fully just as well as loving. And so he must deal with rebels like you and me. You can imagine the, the judge who just lets a murder go off because they go off free because they're just feeling loving. They're just feeling forgiving in that moment. Now, how is that just to the family of the person who was killed? That would be an awful thing to have happen. See, God can't just kind of sweep it under the, under the carpet. What he needs is for someone innocent, someone who's never sinned, can be the only one to pay that penalty because each of us needs to pay it. And we can't because we're in the wrong before God. Only Jesus can pay that penalty. And so if your trust is in Jesus this morning, the penalty is paid. That's what he did when he died for you. When God looks at you, he doesn't anymore see a rebel. He doesn't look at you and see an overdue payment or a person who's committed crimes and needs a punishment. No, he looks at you and sees Jesus' perfect life. See, Jesus paid the penalty so that you and I are no longer in debt to God. He paid it for us. And it means that we can come before God with such confidence. Good Friday is good because I can sit before God and never have to wonder if he'll change his mind. Never have to wonder if there'll be an extra payment that I need to do later or extra things that I need to do to kind of get back into God's good books. He's not like a friend where I can be on his offside or his onside, depending on how I've, I've, I've acted towards him. No, in Jesus, you are fully and completely had your debt paid forever. You are safe and secure with the God who loves you. That's the first thing that we see here in Isaiah. But the second thing we see 
is that Jesus brings us this peace with God by sacrifice. It's peace with God by sacrificing his own life. Did you catch it in verse 6? We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. See, without Jesus sacrificing his life, we would still be at war. I don't know if you've thought about it in those terms before, but you can't be neutral with God. You're either God's friend or God's enemy. You're either in with God or out. You're either in God's family or at war with him. There's no in-between. See, God is rightfully angry at how humans have treated him. He made us for relationship with him, and we live in rebellion, creating our own little principalities of Ben or <laughs> our own little kingdoms. And God is angry. He's angry at the way we've treated him. And it's only Jesus' sacrifice that changes God's attitude from anger towards us to love. See, Jesus' sacrifice is like a lightning rod in the middle of a storm. The purpose of a lightning rod is to, you know, you kind of put it on tall buildings or things, and it, and it attracts all the lightning onto it, and in so doing so, protects the structure around it from getting any of the force or power of the strikes of lightning when there is a thunderstorm. The lightning absorbs it all so that the building is safe. See, that's Jesus' death in our place. He takes all the anger and wrath of God at our sin and rebellion, our brokenness, our injustice, all the ways that we have turned our backs on him. And he takes it on himself and absorbs it all so that we don't have to. Can you imagine that for a second? Think about the worst moment in your life. Think about the moments when you felt brokenness, sin, shame, guilt, when you've felt devastated, when you've been hurt by others, Jesus on the cross bore all of that. All of that for all people who have trusted God in the past, in the present, and in the future. In that one moment, he bore it all on himself at the cross. Can you imagine that? I can't even deal with the weight of my own worst moments, let alone the weight of the worst moments of every single person who trusts God throughout all of history. The agony of that, the shame that Jesus must have felt, all of it, the wrath of God absorbed by Jesus so that we didn't have to. We sang it earlier, but Jesus is truly the man of sorrows, the man of suffering. No one has suffered like that in the history of of all of the world. See, the night before Jesus died, when he's in the garden, or the night of when he died, he's in the garden with his disciples, and he asked them to pray for him. And he asked God, he says to his father, is there another way? What is it that Jesus is worried about in the garden? It's not physical death. Have you noticed that? It's not physical death and dying. He's, he's, that's kind of, he's okay with that. It's taking on the wrath of God. It's bearing all the weight of our sin and shame, those consequences that has Jesus sweating blood in the garden. And he does it for us willingly and even joyfully out of love. That's why Good Friday's good. It's his life for ours in love. See, look at your own life for a second. Think about your own brokenness, your neediness, the ways that you have sinned and fallen short of God, I want to ask you this question this morning. 
Do you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? Think about what it cost him. The agony, the shame. Do you think he regrets it? Getting involved with you, saving you, sacrificing his life for you. The answer is no. He doesn't. It was his plan before all of creation and he did it with love in mind and the glory of his father. See, Jesus went through all of that for us because he had the bigger picture in mind. The reconciliation of God's people at peace who were once rebels. The saving of those who didn't deserve it. God's love poured out in that moment. You can picture Jesus before the creation of the world speaking with God the Father and God the Spirit and saying, yes, this is going to be the most agonizing thing any person's ever gone through in the history of the world, but I'm willing to do it out of love. I'm willing to do it because I want people to come back into relationship with you, God the Father, and to know you and know your love in their life. Look at how Isaiah 53, this ancient prophecy, ends in verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded. For the rebels. Do you see it there? Jesus knew the big plan. He knew this prophecy was about him. He knew that after his anguish, he would see the light and be satisfied. He knew that God would give him the many as a portion, speaking about the people that have saved and in Jesus. And, and, and so because of that, he was willing to submit even to death on a cross. Jesus doesn't regret getting involved with you. Maybe this morning, you don't know that yet. And I want to encourage you, you can turn to Jesus this morning and experience his love and forgiveness and saving. You could do that this morning, make that choice. And if you've made that choice once before, I want to remind you that you don't move on from that decision. Jesus covers you. He loves you. He pours out his love for you. And we remember it at the cross, but we need to remember it every single day of our lives. He doesn't regret saving you, sacrificing his life for you. When God looks at you, if your trust is in Jesus, he looks at you with love. He doesn't see a rebel, a sinner, someone broken. He looks at you and sees Jesus. Jesus is perfection in your place. See, how do you picture God? Because he's not scowling down at you, some angry old man up in the sky, looking down, rolling his eyes, and continuing saying, oh, they stuffed up again. They let me down again. They didn't listen to me again. God's not like that. God looks at you with love and tenderness and compassion because Jesus sacrificed his life for you. See, God couldn't love you any more than what he does right now. Because of Jesus, he loves us with the love of a father. Because of Jesus, we're invited into the love that God the Father has for God the Son. We're invited into it. God couldn't love you any more than what he does now because of Jesus. The reality that the Bible uses to describe this concept is the word atonement. That the penalty has been paid. That God's no longer angry towards us but loves and that he's brought about peace. That's the idea of atonement, the biblical word. 
If you want a way to think about it, you can think of breaking it up to say, at one moment. We're now at one. Peace has been achieved. We've been brought back into the relationship with the God who loves us and made us for himself. Atonement. Here's the poetic way, though, that Peter uses an image to describe this reality of being at one now with God. In chapter 2, verse 25, he says, You were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Surely here, Peter has Isaiah 53, 6 in mind, doesn't he? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It's the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's in Jesus' death that we find life. It's in Jesus, the great shepherd, who is both the sacrifice and the one in whom we return to, to praise, to live for, and to love. We return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. See, that's why Christians celebrate Jesus' death. That's why we call Good Friday good. It's why we have this mix of emotions where it's joyful but somber. It's, it's, it's thankful but aware of the pain that Jesus went through. We've we got to hold the tension here. But ultimately, Good Friday is good. Because it's the best news we could ever receive. Sinners, rebels who are at war with God brought back into peace with him. When you feel anxiety or doubt about your future, maybe this morning you're feeling a sense of loss or regret or shame about something in your past. Maybe right now you're feeling lost or damaged beyond repair. You're wandering and you don't know where you're going. Jesus' death is for you. He died to bring you home, to bring you under the care of himself, the good Shepherd. You see, in Jesus' death, he offers to trade our record for his. To no longer be defined by our past, but by his love. To be no longer see ourselves in the wrong that we have done and, and look down on us as rebels, but to look at us and see Jesus' sacrifice. To give us a solid hope for the future, even in the ups and downs of life. See, that's what Jesus is offering us this Easter. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, if that verse is true, then what else is there to do but to turn and to thank him and to trust him and to say that we're sorry for rebelling against him and come back into the fold? What else is there to do? And when we do that, God says to us, you're no longer trapped. You're no longer weighed down and limited by your past. You're no longer astray and wandering and hopeless. You're home. You're with me now for eternity. See, if you trust Jesus, your story has been written into his story. Your future is wrapped up in his future. You've got a new future now. He paid the price. He dealt with God's anger. And he has reconciled and brought us back into peace with God. This Friday's good. Because if you're in Jesus, you're going to be okay. Your future is sure. Your debt is paid. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Good Friday. We stop and we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, that he took on your wrath, 
that he paid the penalty for the sin that we deserved. And we're heartbroken by it. The anguish, the pain, what it would have felt like for Jesus. But then we're reminded that he did it for us, willingly and joyfully, out of love and out of a desire that we might come back into relationship with God, that we might move from rebels to family. Thank you so much for that truth this Easter. Thank you for Jesus' death and what it means for each of us. We pray that you would help us to go out this Easter more confident in your love, more secure in our hope, and more convicted to live for you and share the good news of Jesus' death with others in our lives. Fill us with hope and joy this Good Friday. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.